Genesis chapter 17, verse 22 to 18, 15. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it, and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And he took curds and the milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mothers with us here today, both uh, expecting mothers, uh, spiritual mothers. Salutes to you all, and a very happy Mother's Day uh, to all the mothers here. Uh, this past week, I got together with a friend of mine, and uh, I asked him, uh, he's a doctor, so I asked him, well, how's work going for you these days? Uh, in response to this question, he let out a laugh, a rich hearty laugh, a throwing back his head kind of laughter, and uh, he proceeded to describe uh, a really sad story about the situations that many health professionals find themselves here in Philadelphia. Uh, doctors, nurses, uh, managers, uh, all uh, quitting, uh, being overworked, uh, mismanaged systems leading to overscheduling, underscheduling, uh, institutional corruption, he shared that patients are literally dying because they're unable to uh, get help and they can't be seen. And I looked at him and I laughed in response to that because I said, well, well that's not funny at all. <laughs> What's laugh worthy about anything that you just said? 
And we don't always laugh because something is funny. Sometimes we laugh in seemingly uh, inappropriate contexts. We might be put in a very awkward situation that we don't know how to get out of, and uh, all we can help to do is let out a nervous kind of laughter. Some people even laugh when they're frightened. I don't know if you've ever gone and seen a scary movie in a theater, and there might be some people uh, laughing. It's, it's something that's very common with some folks, that they laugh when they're scared. Sadly, at times, when we're feeling our worst, when we feel the weight of the world, we feel that nothing has gone our way, and we become distraught with our life, we can't help but to let out a hopeless and bitter laugh. We find similar laughter here in Genesis 18 as Sarah laughs in response to the Lord's promise, a promise that seemed just so hard to believe, something so out of this world that she had no other uh, reaction than to just laugh. But it wasn't a laugh of joy, it was a bitter laugh. But what we'll see today in our passage is that God meets with Sarah where she is, takes this hopeless laugh filled with doubt and unbelief, and replaces it with a laughter filled a laughter filled with joy and faith. Through this, I, I hope that what we're going to see today is that God has only made promises to his people that he guarantees to keep, no matter how extraordinary or how wonderful they may seem, as the guarantee is God and Christ himself. So, as we look now at our passage, following last week's text, uh, after the Lord promises and affirms to Abraham that he would establish his everlasting covenant with Abraham's future son, uh, uh, Isaac, who would come from Sarah, Abraham, we see, proceeds to circumcise all males in the household himself and Ishmael as the sign of this covenant with his people. Remember that uh, the promises of this covenant, if we forgot, they were first given in Genesis 12 when the Lord first calls Abraham, promising him that, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So after Abraham and all males of his household are circumcised, we come to chapter 18 where the Lord appears to Abraham again. The Lord comes to Abraham as he's uh, uh, finishing up uh, his morning work, most likely uh, preparing for a nap that would take place during the hottest part of the day. And as he's uh, maybe nodding off, Abraham looks up and he notices three men approaching. He proceeds to put this great feast in motion. After bringing out the calf, uh, the milk, and this uh, yogurt dip for the bread, Abraham stands by as his guests eat. And we may look at this scene, God eating with Abraham, and think to ourselves, well, that's weird. That's, That's suspicious, right? God eating human food. Who has heard or even seen such a thing like this? We might even go to Psalm 50 and think, you know, and we read, you know, God saying, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? 
Right, so what's, what's going on here? In fact, you, you, so you pour through the Old Testament. This is the only instance in the Old Testament, in Scripture, before Christ comes, where we see God eating with a human being. We can go back and forth and, and you know, talk about the implications of this, but I, I think this is an area of Scripture we don't really need to overthink too much. We affirm that definitely this is God here visiting Abraham, right? It's obvious. We look, Abraham is looking up, and it just jumps out of us from the pages, right? He calls God Lord, right? A calf is slain for the feast, even though a sheep or a goat would have went above and beyond and would have definitely sufficed and demonstrated hospitality. He instructs Sarah to break three seas of fine flour, a, fly, a fine flour that would later be used in cereal offerings to the Lord, right? So all of this, it's so obvious that, yes, this is God here. And so what we see here is this beautiful picture of God coming down to share a meal with Abraham. As God reaffirms the promise of the covenant through Isaac, after the sign of the covenant is made on all males in Abraham's household, the Lord comes to Abraham to disclose this unreserved familiarity, gracious friendship to Abraham and his family. In short, we can say that God is just coming to be a friend to Abraham. He comes to express this intimate friendship. And even before this meal, we see Abraham running from the tent door to meet the men. A greeting action elsewhere in Genesis is where people are only running to see their long-lost relatives. We see in Genesis 29 as Laban runs to greet Jacob. And in chapter 33 as Esau runs to be reunited with his brother after some time. So even in this running motion as Abraham is running to these uh, men, we see that there's this deep intimacy that Abraham and God share a friendship, a real friendship that elsewhere in Scripture is picked up. Isaiah writes in chapter 41, verse 8, But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. James 2, Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteous. He was called a friend of God. Well, we have seen God reveal himself to Abraham as God, right? Even in the previous chapter, how does he address him? He says, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Here we see a very different side of our Lord who comes as a friend to show this deep intimacy. And as the meal continues, uh, the Lord then directs his attention to Sarah and by asking the question, uh, where is Sarah, your wife? God, uh, being all-knowing, certainly knew uh, where Sarah was. He asked this in the very same way as we've already seen in the book of Genesis as he calls out to man in the garden, where are you? And to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He's not asking because he has no idea where these people are, but instead does so to draw attention. And here we see it again. Where is Sarah, your wife? Now the spotlight is on Sarah. Though Abraham is sharing this meal and friendship with the Lord, we now see the attention now from God to Sarah. Sarah quietly listening at the tent door behind Abraham, now uh, now, I'm probably listening a little more intently 
God then reaffirms the promise of a child, promising, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. To this great promise, Sarah responds and laughs to herself. And, you know, we, we might read this, and it might be easy to judge Sarah for her, her you know, complete lack of faith. Right? Don't, don't you know who, who this God is, Sarah? He, he can see you through the walls, you know? He, he knows you're here. Why doubt this, you know, God who can see, who's all-knowing and all-seeing? Moses, the author of Genesis, gives us a little uh, editorial insight into the story in uh, verse 11 that would explain uh, Sarah's laughter. He writes, Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. It literally reads, Sarah no longer experienced the cycle of women. Not only had Sarah been as we remember, infertile all her life, struggling to uh, get pregnant. But now she was also 90 and post-menopausal. In this way, the author makes clear, and the story makes clear, that she was doubly dead when it came to childbearing. Her body was in a state that was proactively dying. So in response, Sarah lets out this disheartened, Bitter, hopeless, non-believing laugh. After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And we see the Lord respond with this question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This word hard, I don't know, in your copy of Scripture, there may be a footnote, but it can also be seen as wonderful. And so the question can actually be restated is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And through this, God is actually disclosing himself to Sarah, who he is, who the psalmist would later extol in Psalm 77 as the God of wonders. You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Why is it that God waited so long to fulfill his promise to Abraham? We've already seen that this was first promised in chapter 12, right? Six chapters ago when the Lord first called him, promising Abraham to make a great nation out of him, that you know, his, he would be the, the source of blessing for the world, right? Six chapters ago, Abraham was 75, right? So why now, right? Why wait this long? Why wait over 20 years to come and promise that, yes, this time next year, Sarah will have a son, what else did the Lord have going on, right, in the last 25 or so years that would prevent him from doing the thing that he promised, to open Sarah's womb and allow the birth of a son that he would establish his everlasting covenant with? As we remember Genesis 16 with the account of Hagar and Ishmael, it is no wonder why God chose to wait this long to appear to Abraham and Sarah. We remember that Ishmael, Abraham's son through Sarah's servant, what was the result of Abraham and Sarah taking matters of God's promise into their own hands? They heard the God's promise to them. They said, well, that sounds really great. I don't think that's going to happen now, so why don't we try to make it happen through our own power, through their own strength? It was their attempt to realize God's promises into reality using any way that they knew how. 
And so the Lord chooses to come and appear to Abraham and Sarah with this promise that a son would be born next year only after all hope in their human efforts were lost. It was only until Abraham and Sarah gave up any any hope, any idea, any, any kind of inkling that the promised seed would come from Sarah's biological child. And even to the end, right? Even to the very end in chapter 17, Abraham clings to his own efforts in the face of God who comes and gives him his promise. In response to this wonderful promise of a child through Sarah, Abraham bows before the God. And what does he say? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Oh, that you would take my human attempts, my fleshly strength to bring about your promise and your kingdom here on earth. What, what a ridiculous thing to say to our God, right? It's, it's like, um, I don't know, you, you ask, you say, you come to me, you know, it's, Korean food is very popular these days, right? I go to Korean restaurants, there's far more non-Koreans than Koreans these days, and it's like, you know, it's good. <laughs> Finally, right? Okay, good. So let's say you come to me and you say, you know, Victor, I've, I've never experienced this, uh, you know, authentic, real Korean food, right? And you say, you know, can you, can you take me somewhere where we can experience this authentic Korean food, or a real Korean dish, and I say, yes, okay, you know, I got you. I know exactly a place, okay? We'll go to North Philly, right? Right in the trenches, right on 3rd Street, right? It's this, this unmarked house, right? You need to get buzzed to get in. You, you go in, they transform this house into a restaurant. It's a real restaurant. It no longer exists, sadly, by the way. Uh, but, you know, you go in there, and there's just, like, four Korean grandmothers in the back, and uh, the menus are in Korean, and, you know, it will transport you straight to Korea. You hear me say all this, and you say, well, you know, that, that sounds all good and well, but that also sounds like quite a journey. I, I was shopping at Trader Joe's last week, and I noticed in the frozen meal section that they have uh, some Korean uh, meals that we can just heat. I can do this myself. Right? What a ridiculous thing to say. It's not the same thing as what happened between Abraham and God, but I hope you get the point that I'm trying to bring out. Abraham and Sarah are clinging to what they can do, thinking that what they could do was best. What they could do could bring about God's promise here in this world. And so God, he waits. He waits until all hope in human might, all hope in the flesh would be exhausted. Only when Sarah and Abraham come to the end of themselves in hope did God come and say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And amazingly here, he's actually giving a verbal confirmation of what was demonstrated three chapters ago in Genesis 15. Remember, uh, we have this weird uh, situation where the Lord instructs Abraham to, you know, cut up these animals, uh, put them side by side, and, uh, you know, we're like, well, what's going on here? The meaning might be odd to us. The meaning was not lost to Abraham. Uh, this was very common as two parties enter into a covenant together. And after these animals are split apart and set side to side, the two parties would walk down the middle of it so as to signify, let the fate of these animals be upon me if I do not keep my end of the covenants. And yet we see in chapter 15 that it's the Lord alone who passes through these animals to show Abraham, it's not on you. I alone the God of wonders, 
I will accomplish this. Not through your strength, but through mine. The message to Sarah here in chapter 18 is the same. I am the God of wonders. Is anything too hard for me to accomplish? After the Lord reiterates the promise that he would return this time next year and Sarah would have a son, uh, our selected passage ends and it almost the, it's almost funny, right? The Lord asks, right, why did Sarah laugh? Sarah denies this and says, I did not laugh. And to this, the Lord says, no, but, but you did laugh. And a weird way to end any section, but at a closer look, the Lord is actually doing something here. He is masterfully working wordplay into this very uh, situation of denial. As God addresses Sarah's unbelief, he leads her to speak a form of her son's name, Isaac, which means laughter, to transform this unbelief into belief, though Sarah would not realize it at that time. No, I did not Isaac. Yes, you did Isaac. We look ahead when Sarah gives birth in Genesis 21. She exclaims, God has made laughter for me. We see laughter of joy. As God gently approaches Sarah, he turns her laughter of hopelessness and doubt into a laughter filled with faith, belief, and trust in the Lord. The author of Hebrews would write of Sarah, By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah denies that she laughs. Why? Our text says, because she was afraid. And rightly so. You're lying in the face of God. And so what should have resulted in divine judgment in reality ends with the Lord strengthening Sarah as she sits in disbelief as the Lord graciously works faith in her. Through our passage this morning, we see this beautiful picture and parallel of the gospel and how the Lord has actually worked faith in each and every one of our hearts, all of those here who call Jesus Lord. As we are born into this world as sinners, hostile to God's truth and promises, even if God appeared before us, we would still deny him. Jesus, God's very son, who according to Philippians 2, did not count his equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself to take on the form of a servant, coming to us in the form of a man, to be our friend, to be our savior. And while we were still sinners, hostile to God, Christ came as the promised seed to establish this everlasting covenant with you and me. And in this way, he demonstrated to and for us the greatest love a friend could share. A love that John describes, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That was for you. That was for me. It was not by our own human willpower or logic that we came to accept these wonderful claims of the gospel. No, it was God working hope in us, hope against hope, against our unbelief to transform our hearts and work faith in us the same way he did in Sarah, that we might be counted children of God, part of this everlasting kingdom. And in this way, Genesis 18 actually 
uh, stands to both challenge and encourage us as we think about uh, those in, in our midst, uh, our unbelieving neighbors, our family members and friends who do not call Christ Lord. And as we enter in conversations presenting the gospel, we stand in full confidence knowing that God is fully able to work despite our fears, our feeble words and work faith in those who have hearts of stone. And as we think about as engaging with non-believers, that's where we start in prayer to our God, recognizing that he is a God of wonders. Well, we might not be able to articulate arguments as eloquently as we read in books with authors who have uh, theologically astute authors. We are encouraged and lifted up as we're reminded that it is the God of wonders alone who is able to bring the dead to life. And as we continue to reflect on Sarah's laughter, Genesis 18, I believe, also serves as a very real mirror for even us believers, for our own skepticism that prevents us to believe in the many promises that God has made to his people found throughout Scripture, especially the ones that seem far too good to be true. Well, we've already seen faith is not something that comes naturally to us. Even after, as we've come to believe in the gospel, putting our spirit-worked faith in Jesus as our Savior, Scripture makes clear that we are assailed in this life by sin, by the enemy, works its way as doubts about who God is, our trust in him and in his word. Trust in the Lord and the promises he has given to us in Scripture they grind against the wisdom of this world, right? And pride and unbelief that comes so naturally to us always creeps in. And so faith requires and it demands God's continual work in our lives. Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we sit here this morning, are there promises that you have come across in God's word that we now struggle to believe, promises that seem far too hard, far too wonderful to wrap our heads around. Perhaps you are at a particularly low point in your life, feeling the weight of this world, experiencing one tragedy after another, and you come to Romans and read, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, and you say, will it really though? I don't think so. My life is not testimony to that. How will my life come together for good? Maybe you have experienced the death of a close loved one, walking with them through years of sickness, witnessing the deterioration of our fleshly bodies, and you struggle to see promises of the resurrection and say, will it happen? In fact, Christ, was he raised from the dead? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Will believers truly be raised? Will I truly be united with those that have gone to be with the Lord? You may consider close family members, friends, who have all made credible professions of faith at one point in life and yet have turned away from the Lord. And we find that we cannot confidently say with Paul that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our faith even grows weak as we consider our own lives and just how sinful we can still be. Here in Genesis 18, we see that 
that God is not only seeing through these tent walls, but seeing what's in the heart of Sarah as she laughs. So God is there seeing our innermost thoughts, every last doubt, every single sinful tendency that we hide from our families, from our friends, from our neighbors. He sees this, and we come, we come to a point and say, how, how could the Lord truly love me? How could he truly love me and send his son to die for me, the wretch that I am? But you see here, what we see in Genesis 18 is that this is exactly where the Lord delights to meet us, to strengthen our failing faith. In the midst of our weaknesses, our doubts, our faithlessness, the Lord comes to us just as he did to Sarah as she lets out this bitter, faithless laugh and reminds us with the same question this morning, is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there any promise that he has made to us in his word that is too wonderful for the God of wonders to accomplish? God does not wait to approach Abraham and Sarah when they were in a position to fully accept this wonderful promise, but instead came to them at their lowest point. In the same way, Jesus did not come to this world when the Lord looked down and said, okay, good, my people have kept the law perfectly, have walked blameless in my sight, let's put this plan into motion. Christ came to meet sinners where they were, sharing in meals with those considered the worst sinners in society. This has not changed after his death, resurrection, and ascension as he seeks to strengthen you and me this morning. As we struggle in this life, experience doubts of our own. This is where the Lord eagerly meets us. Not to rebuke us in our unbelief, but he comes as a friend to comfort us, to lift our hearts and remind us of who he is. I don't think it's too far to say that even on this side of the cross, we're able to anticipate much greater joy than what Sarah experienced in Genesis 21. As Abraham and Sarah looked ahead to the day when God would establish his everlasting covenant, we look back and rejoice that the promised seed has come in Christ, the one who has established this new covenant, this everlasting covenant for you and for me. Every Sunday we come and we join in this Lord's table as, as a meal. We partake in communion, and every Sunday we are reminded of the meal that the Christ has set for us. In Luke 22, we see Christ sharing this meal with the disciples, instructing them that as they ate and as they drank from the cup, the cup was poured out for you, a new covenant established through his sacrifice, a covenant that now you and I find ourselves in. And so as we approach this table this morning, and share in this meal together instituted by Jesus himself. And as we feast together, let's bring all of our doubts, all of our pain, bring all of the ways that your faith is weak and failing. Bring them to our Savior. Bring them to our friend. Find yourself in his presence as he asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? And as we come together, let us be strengthened. Let us rejoice and celebrate and be glad that God, he has not made us any promises that he is powerless to keep no matter how extraordinary or wonderful they may seem. 
as the guarantee of these promises is the God of wonders himself, as he has shown to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.